Welcome to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. This week, we are going to be studying lesson number seven. Lesson number seven is the covenant with Abraham. And I'm delighted this week to have back with us once again, Dr. Stephen Bauer. He is a professor of theology and ethics at Southern Adventist University. Steve, welcome back again. It's good to be back. Now, we've got a really interesting study this week. We're looking at Abraham, and we're looking at the covenant of Abraham. There are several lessons this quarter that deal with Abraham, but we specifically want to take a look at this covenant this week. And when we get into this week, it talks about how God is going to bless Abraham and through him, many people. What's, what's this covenant all about and, and how is God going to bless people through Abraham? Well, I don't know if we can go to everything the covenant is about, but the center of the covenant deals with um, that the messianic line is coming through you. In you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And traditionally, we see the blessing as the blessing of Christ through salvation, and that is certainly true. Um, But I was reading a book some time ago um, by an author named Vishal Magalwandi, who um, wrote a book where his premise is that, from an apologetic standpoint, his premise is, is that this is a testable statement. Was the world blessed through the Abrahamic faith? And uh, not necessarily, you know, riches and honor and glory, but basic blessings of thriving and flourishing and, and so forth. And so uh, he writes this, uh, this investigation that um, tries to show how places where the Bible has had the strongest cultural influence have had the more blessed life, so to speak, um, uh, this way. So the Bible especially took hold in Europe, and particularly Reformation Europe, and the development of technology, for example, seems to flourish more. You know, the modern technology especially comes out of the European context and so forth. Science, the worldview issues, and he, he notes he's, he's an Indian, and he says, you know, we got all the same brain power in India, but science didn't really arise here the way it did in Europe and America. You know, why? And as he investigates, you know, the Hindu worldview is leading you toward nirvana and emptying yourself of knowledge and emptying. And that kind of mindset is not good for seeing order and purpose and design in nature. Or if you have a more fatalistic, uh, I have no control over my life, uh, uh, you may be brilliant, but... Again, you're not going to tend to ask the kind of questions. But the recognition of reason and rationality from the Greeks, that there is a a rational order and that God created with a designed uh, uh, physical order and then that God is is, um, a chesed, he's um, reliable, stable. This is what gives the idea of predictability in nature and reason that allowed us to come up with the idea that we can do experiments to test our understanding of nature because we expect the same results when we do things every time. You know, if I had my pen here and one time it drops and the next time I let go it floats this way, you would have no predictability. And so it's blessed the world through many different avenues uh, to have the world view that there is a God to whom we are accountable who designed a predictable world based on 
rationally knowable laws that allow us to come up with the scientific method. Uh, and that's why I think it came up in the Christianized Protestant world. And so it indeed has blessed. He also in this book gets into, um, uh, he has a chapter dealing with even political corruption, that nations where God watches you and you're going to be held accountable for how you treat others and and so forth. Uh, now there's a self-control he illustrates it with a self-serve getting your milk at the dairy. Um, God is watching, and he believed that. The money pot is out, and the milk is out, and people coming in self-serve. Um, whereas if you don't have this belief God is watching, they take the pot, the milk, you know, and everything. And so um, he was showing from the time he wrote his book of the top 20 least corrupt nations, 19 of them came out of Judeo-Christian European American kind of roots. Uh, wow. And so his argument is that, that the, the uh, uh, religion that God gave through Abraham to Christ indeed has blessed the world in that it's a testable premise and it's an interesting concept. That's a fascinating idea that, that God gave him to, to delve into that yeah. and to see whether it really was true, yeah. verifiable. And he appears to have found that it was, which really shouldn't surprise us because... You know, if if God has indeed blessed us through Abraham, then the worldview, the the ideas that we have are are going to to reflect that. And the second thing I think that should also be brought out of that, again, God is blessing Abraham to be a blessing to the nations that we just laid out in the table of the nations a couple of weeks ago. You know, um, God did not give this to Abraham to become an inbred, exclusive, um, um, we have this and we don't want you to have it, um, uh, elitist kind of mentality. And when you believe that you have revelations from God that are true, that bless your life and so forth, it can be easy to get cocky and proud and and uh, and even domineering, you know, I know what's best, so we're going to ram it down your throat. And, uh, and so that's um, the in you, all the nations are by you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, shows the global scope of God's love and calls us who think we know more than those around us. And maybe we do because we have this revelation, but the purpose of our knowledge is not to pat ourselves on the back of how good and wonderful we are, but to say, God gave this to us to be a blessing to others. So there's a, a responsibility there, mm. a, a positive responsibility. And, and to a greater or lesser extent, as, as Jesus tells us to go and, and take the gospel to all the world with the Great Commission, we have the opportunity to be a blessing to others, whether that world happens to be on the other side of the planet or or really right next door. Now, let's dive into this into Sunday's lesson. Sunday's lesson talks about the faith of Abraham. We talk sometimes about the faith of Jesus. The faith of Abraham is probably not too terribly different, maybe not quite as perfect as the faith of Jesus, but still pretty strong. What's the significance of, of the faith of Abraham? The author of the lesson here talks a little bit about Romans 4. How does Romans 4 fit together with the, with the faith of Abraham? Well, I could preach a whole sermon on this, so we'll try to be 
be careful on our time schedule, and we may have to go into the next segment here. We'll see how it goes. But um, let's go back, first of all, um, this phrase, the faith of Jesus, I think is probably better understood in the context of the New Testament as faith on Jesus. It's our faith on him. The verb for believing or faith uh, in Greek, uh, Christ is always the, the subject of the verb. We believe on him. He's never the, oh, correction, he's always the object. We're the subject. We believe on him. The Bible never talks about Christ believing on something. We see it in action, but it, he's never the subject of that verb. He's always the object. It's us believing on him. But there is something related to this in Romans 4, because Paul's theology of righteousness by faith, I think, sometimes is misunderstood, because he grounds it in Abraham in Genesis 15. And um, uh, he's going to quote Genesis 15:6 early in uh, Romans 4, uh, you know, the famous Abraham believed God and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness, righteousness. Um, or accounted unto him as righteous, depending on your, it's a, you know, imputational language like entering it into the ledger, you know, that the bill is paid kind of a, a term. And, and so people think that there's this tension between Paul's understanding of faith, well, just believe, you're saved, don't worry about anything, versus James, where, you know, your faith is shown through your works, and they actually uh, agree with one another. And Romans 4 is a great place to see that agreement. But let's, let's again, set it from Genesis 15. Um, God promises Abraham after uh, he delivers Lot. And he says, you know, you're, you're, you're going to have all these descendants and so forth, and Abraham is like, uh, I mean, I'm going to bless you, part of me. And he says, what's good as a blessing if I have no descendant? Now, remember, he's been married a goodly number of years already, so they've been trying without having a child. And so God comes back and says, look at the stars of the heaven and so forth. And he, Abraham believes this promise that he's going to have these descendants, and God credits it to him as righteousness. And so Paul starts there and he makes this statement in Romans 4. As he, I mean, he makes the outline that Abraham was justified before he was circumcised, so therefore you don't have to be circumcised to be justified. It's a brilliant, simple argument. But then he moves into this kind of faith that Abraham has around verse 15 or 16 area, as I recall. And it's in this setting that he says um, that those who believe the way Abraham believed are his children. So the question is, how did Abraham believe? And here I'm going to read from Romans 4, uh, 18 to 22, Paul's depiction of it uh, from the English Standard Version. Uh, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he'd been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. She was about ten years younger. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And then Paul says, 
That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So notice we have these statements. He believes against hope. He did not weaken in faith. No distrust made him waver. And he's fully convinced that God can do what he's promised. And I'm sitting there reading this saying, how can you say this, Paul, in light of the Hagar incident? That's a, that is a fascinating question. And we are going to come back and delve into that question. How is his faith so perfect, if we want to use that word, and yet you've got the whole Hagar thing? We're going to be back and look at that in just a moment. But I want to encourage you, if you haven't already done so, please be sure to pick up the companion book to this quarter's study. It is on the book of Genesis by Jacques Ducan. Know that it will be a blessing to you, and you will get so much more out of not just the Sabbath School lesson and what you've been learning here as you've been watching the Sabbath School program here on It Is Written, but read that book and you will get even more out of the lesson. We're going to be back in just a moment as we continue looking at the faith of Abraham, especially with respect to Hagar. We'll be right back. You know that at It Is Written, we are serious about the study of the Word of God, and we encourage you to be serious about God's Word also. Well, I want to share with you another way that you can dig deeper into the Word of God, and here it is. Itiswritten.study Go online to itiswritten.study and you can access the It Is Written Bible Study Guides. 25 in-depth Bible studies that will walk you through the Bible. It's going to be good for you, and it's the sort of thing that you will want to tell somebody else about so that they can dig deeper into the Word of God and come to know the things of the Bible intimately. As you get into the It Is Written online Bible study guides, you'll understand the prophecies of the Bible, the plan of salvation, and more. So don't forget, itiswritten.study. It is written dot study. If you enjoy coloring, then you are going to love the Buried Treasure Coloring Book from My Place with Jesus. The Buried Treasure Coloring Book has more than just pictures to color. You'll also enjoy activity pages, each accompanied by their very own audio story. Mr. Dixon came across a small, well-weeded rice patch out in the middle of a field. Get ahead of a rainy day or a relaxing evening as a family and order the Buried Treasure Coloring Book from It Is Written. Welcome back to Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. We are continuing our study of lesson number seven, looking at the faith of Abraham. Now, Steve, when we left the last segment, we talked about Abraham's wonderful faith, and yet... It was somewhat imperfect, apparently, because you've got this, this glaring issue with Hagar. So how do we reconcile these ideas? Again, we asked a question here from Romans 4, uh, 18 to 22. Paul lays out this very lofty view of Abraham's faith and said this is why he was accounted as righteous. You know, in hope, he believed against hope, and then he didn't weaken in faith. In verse 20, he didn't waver. And verse 21, he's fully convinced in spite of his age and Sarah's age and so forth. And I read that and I say, what about Hagar? You know, what's going on here? So let's think about this for a moment. Uh, again, the context of Genesis 15 where he believes this promise. And by the way, he believes in the promise of a son 
and God justifies him. Now we know he believes in sacrificial atonement because of the sacrifice of Isaac, and yet there's something about belief in you're going to have a son that God says, well, that's justifying faith. Um, And Paul uses this then to make an analogy to our faith in the sacrifice of Christ. God promises Abraham that he's going to have a son out of his own loins, his own, today we say his own biological DNA child, okay? And because he's worried that he's going to bequest it all to Eliezer, his servant, because they're having no children, and he's apparently not solving his problem at this point with polygamy. And at the end of chapter 15, God appears as this flaming pot I see as the equivalent of the Shekinah between the cherubim, you know, the visible presence of God. Um, And Abraham has these sacrifices that he um, cuts in half and lays out. And from archaeology, we know this is a covenant sacrifice ceremony. And it's a covenant between a greater and a lesser. And the lesser would offer the sacrifice to the deity of whoever, you know, if you were in Canaan, one of their deities of God, you know, in Israel to God, etc. Uh, he does this, and the lesser then would normally at the right time pass between these pieces, chanting repeatedly, because, and they, by the way, they would put these pieces in uh, on like a little bit of a ditch so that the blood would run down into the dirt And then barefoot, he would walk the bloody path between the pieces, saying to the superior, may you do this to me and more if I'm not faithful to the covenant. And so the point was, a covenant was just not a contract. It was a contract that you guaranteed with your life. And if I don't fulfill this contract, you can execute me. Okay. Genesis records something very unusual. It never mentions Abraham going through the pieces. That's kind of duh. Everybody knew that. But the pot goes between the pieces, the flaming pot of God. What's he saying to Abraham? He's saying, I'm guaranteeing this promise of son with my life. So what are we expecting? If God's guaranteed a son with his very life, what should happen? You should see a son. We're going to see a son. So you go to chapter 16, and it immediately says, Sarai, Abram's wife, because they haven't changed the names yet, bore him no children. You're like, what? And then she concludes God has prevented her from having children. Why does she conclude that now? Why not a chapter ago or later? Well, if you look at her age proportionate to her death, she's right at the time where women stop being able to be, you know, go medically different to be able to get pregnant and so forth. So I think that she sees those signs, you know, the first hot flash or whatever. And, um, and so because God hasn't specified who the mother is, <coughs> he's just told Abraham, you, well, duh, this is logical. So following the customs of her day out of Ur, where they came from, well, let's bring the surrogate in and, you know, Hagar, and so forth. And that works. There's obviously no medical problem with Abram. And then, Abram's 86 years old. 
and you go one more verse into 17, and Abram's 99 years old. How many years just went by? More than one or two. 86 to 99 would be? So 13 years. 13. Yep. Why 13? Think Jewish. Hmm. Interesting. Bar mitzvah time. Right. Okay. He's becoming a legal adult, and suddenly God shows up, and this is going to lead to circumcision, and then Sarah's going to get pregnant about this time next year. And Abram laughs. But let's back up for a moment. If Sarah was infertile 13 years ago, what is she now? She would be very infertile. Very infertile. No wonder he laughs, and she laughs. And God makes this promise that Sarah is going to get pregnant. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a second. Let's come back to Hagar for just a moment. Notice that Paul says that Abraham was fully convinced that God would give him the son. Abram never doubted he was getting the son. He had some questions on how, but not if. And Paul focuses on the if, not the how. And so I think there's a lesson there for us as well. Sometimes we think it's so obvious that God can't work this way and has to work that way that we don't stop to ask God, what should we do? And if Abram has stopped to say, all right, Lord, Sarah seems to be infertile. How do we want to handle this? It may be a whole different history. But it was so duh that they don't stop to think about it. And I think there's a lesson for us in, you know, don't just assume, ask God about your assumptions. Go to Scripture and test your assumptions and so that you don't just bring your culture in and make a big mistake that way. So Abram now is supposed to have a son from his own loins, but now God says, Sarai, now Sarah, is going to be the mother. But she's been post-fertile for 13 years. I would still suggest that Abram and Sarah had to take care of certain marital um, biological business for this to be a son of his loins. This is not a conception like Jesus. But to try to produce a baby with a woman who's been infertile for 13 years makes no sense. Zero. Except God made a promise that she's going to get pregnant. And so they enter into that activity out of raw faith in God's promise, not because it's logically possible. And that's the kind of faith that Paul says is justifying faith and that he calls us to. And this is why it agrees with James, because the justifying faith is the faith that trusts God so much that even if things don't make sense, I'm willing to stake my life on his promise and make a lifestyle choice to step out and trust God will somehow fulfill it in a way I don't understand. And that's a, a huge lesson for us today, for those of us living in the last days of Earth's history. That kind of faith to step out, even when what we see, what we expect, what we, what we know to be true, uh, doesn't look like it can come to pass. But we've got an example of Abraham there when it absolutely did. And I think you see two correctives to that. One is, I think Genesis 22 and the sacrifice of Isaac is um, God's response to the Hagar incident. 
Now Isaac is up around 16 or 17 years old. And basically God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to take all the visible evidence of this promise. And I want you to put it on an altar and sacrifice it to me and still trust I can give you children through that son that you just sacrificed. And Abram lifts the knife. Talk about trusting God. You know, it's that radical faith of Abraham that even amazes theologians to this day. His willingness to step out when there's no sense, but I trust this guy, that somehow he's going to do it. Hebrews tells us he believed Isaac would be resurrected. But whether he's resurrected in my lifetime or a thousand years from now, I don't know. Uh, but he trusts God, and he trusts God enough to take the radical faith step. Um, and then no more Hagar's until Sarah dies, and it's clear that she's no longer being used of God, and then he marries Keturah and has six more. Powerful story. <clears throat> Powerful story. We've got just a, a short <clears throat> bit of time left. Yes. Let's talk about... Uh, Abraham and Sodom. Um, what, how, did that whole, how does that all fit into what we're looking at here with the, the covenant that he has with, with God? Well, remember, Lot has separated, though he's a, a nephew of, of Abram's. But again, we go back a couple of weeks um, um, with that investigative judgment scene with Babel. We have another one here because God comes down to investigate Sodom and he's talking to Abram. And Abram is very concerned, in you all the nations shall be blessed, right? He's very concerned that Lot is living down there, and are you just going to destroy the righteous and, and the wicked? That wouldn't be morally correct. And God says, yeah, yeah, you're right, you know. And so then Abram starts this bartering. But before I get to the bartering, I just want to come back. Again, the coming down is not because God is ignorant. He's coming down so that Abram and the Sodomites and so forth and us will know without question that God just didn't act on some hearsay, some remote, you know. No, he looked at the evidence and he's making an evidence-based moral judgment so that we can trust him. He does it for our sake, not for his sake. Good. So we have again, you know, this example of investigative judgment here with Sodom, who, by the way, is first mentioned in the Table of the Nations. Uh, this way. So Abram barters down, down, down to ten people. And uh, there's debate about this, but if Lot had two daughters living at home, these are the two who escape with him, but then as he has sons-in-law, so some, this is not nailed down, but some infer he had two more daughters that were married and outside the home. And so if you take four daughters two fiancés, two husbands, Lot and his wife, that would make ten people. And so it appears then that Abram stakes the future of Sodom on the righteousness of his relatives. So when Abram gets up the next day and sees the smoke, I think he needed to know that God went down and took a look because he had to be disappointed. So again, character of God and help us understand him. Yeah, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Steve, thanks again for being with us this week. I appreciate your insights into the covenant that God made with Abraham. And thank you for joining us once again. Delighted to have you, and we look forward to seeing you next time when we come back diving into the book of Genesis as we study lesson number eight. God bless you. We'll see you next time.